Welcome to episode three of the Ohio Heritage Music Project, a podcast devoted to telling the stories of historic people and places through music and interviews. My name is Clint Holly, and I'll be your host for this episode, which is called A Fighting Heart, The Johnny Kilbane Story and the Cleveland Irish Experience. Imagine this. Cleveland, Ohio is home to the most popular and well-known athlete on the face of the planet. Sound familiar? No, we're not talking about LeBron James here. He's moved on to greener pastures. We're diving way back into the early 20th century here in a boxer named Johnny Kilbane. Johnny Kilbane was the featherweight champion of the world from 1912 until 1923, making him the second longest champion other than Joe Lewis in the history of boxing. Johnny Kilbane came from a neighborhood on the west side of Cleveland called The Angle, and his father was an Irish immigrant, and he went through a lot of the things that Irish people went through in Cleveland, Ohio during that time. There were many waves of Irish immigration over the years, and a lot of people looked down on the unskilled laborers that came off of these boats who worked on the canals and in the factories of Cleveland. We're going to talk about that today and the experience of people who immigrated to Cleveland and kind of how he rose above all that and really became uh, one of the most popular people in the history of Cleveland. This is going to be a fantastic episode, and I'm very excited for some of the interviews that we conduct for this particular podcast. Margaret Lynch uh, is the executive director of the Irish American Archives Society, and she sat down and talked at length with us about uh, Irish immigration, Irish culture, how Irish people came to Cleveland, why they came to Cleveland, and how they assimilated themselves into the fabric of Cleveland itself. Our other interview was Kevin O'Toole, who is Johnny Kilbane's great-grandson, and he speaks lovingly and in-depth about a lot of the things that you may not know about Johnny Kilbane the boxer. We have two musical guests on this episode, Doug McKean, who writes a lot of original material and is also a member of the Pogues tribute band, The Boys from County Hell, and Rory Hurley, another local Cleveland musician who is deeply ingrained in the Irish community. Both of these artists were recorded on the top floor of Terrestrial Brewing, which is located inside an old power generation facility in a neighborhood called Battery Park. Uh, the building itself is one of the last original structures from the EverReady Corporation, which used to make, uh, of all things, batteries. But the area is now under intense redevelopment and has a lot of condos and is one of the largest residential communities inside the city limits of Cleveland. The powerhouse itself is a giant structure. It's old. It's from the late 1800s. It's got giant iron beams, and it sounded fantastic. Well, let's roll up our sleeves and get to it. Immigration is obviously a hot-button issue these days, with millions of people on both sides of the argument. And my goal here is to not start some kind of political confrontation. My goal is to tell a story. And this story has a lot to do with empathy and how somebody that's from a perceived lower class of people can rise above those perceptions and bring joy to millions of people. Johnny Kilbane was a boxer. More specifically, he was a featherweight boxer of Irish-American descent, and his father had immigrated to the United States sometime in the 1870s due to the many famines that plagued Ireland during that time period. In the early 20th century, Irish people were not looked upon in Cleveland with very high regard. Really, they were looked upon as a brute labor. They were used to unload boats, build canals, and build ships, and really any other job that you just needed a strong back for. 
It's important to note here that the Cuyahoga River, meaning Crooked River, splits the city in half. The east side and the west side, eventually flowing into Lake Erie, which borders the city to the north. In the early 20th century, there was a large industry based around everything nautical. And on the west side, there was a neighborhood called The Angle. And this was a rough and tumble, almost a slum type of neighborhood, which housed a lot of Irish people because they were close to the people that would hire them to do labor, such as building boats and unloading ships. In early 2019, I sat down with Margaret Lynch and talked to her about Irish immigration to Cleveland. And she told me that there were several waves of immigration to the Cleveland area from Ireland, starting in the 1820s and the 1830s with barge builders and canal diggers, because that was a, a huge industry at the time. But starting in the 1840s, there was a wave of famines and bad weather that hit Ireland, and Cleveland was a boomtown offering a lot of opportunity at that time. So uh, Irish people flocked here to get away from the poor conditions in their country, especially in the 1860s through the 1880s, when there were some smaller waves of Irish immigrants uh, especially from an area on the West Coast called Ackle Island. And you'll still find a huge amount of Irish descendant people from that area of Ireland in Cleveland to this day. The angle plays into our story because that's where Johnny Kilbane was born. His father had settled there after he immigrated to the United States uh, somewhere in the late 1870s, early uh, 1880s. And the angle is a neighborhood where the confluence of the Cuyahoga River and Lake Erie meet. And this is where the jobs were at for the Irish people. And this is where they flocked to, perhaps to escape some of the perceptions about them and some of the prejudice. They could go to this neighborhood and uh, live uh, affordably, and they could avoid the uh, prejudice that uh, was often foisted upon them by the community in general. As I spoke to Margaret Lynch, she talked a lot about this and the perception of Irish people and how they were denied jobs in certain areas. And uh, so let's sit in with her right now and listen to some of her uh, explanation of how Irish people were perceived in the early 20th century in Cleveland, Ohio. There was sort of a, a cyclical resurgence of um, animosity toward the Irish um, that kind of coincided with the large waves of immigration. Right. Um I mentioned uh, the Hibernians earlier in my family's involvement. Um, they, they were founded in 1830s as in America as a result of um, uh, prejudice against the Irish who were coming to work on the canals. So in the 1850s, you had the rise of the Know Nothing uh, movement, right. which was very virulently anti-immigrant, perhaps even more. And, and because of it, there were more Irish people here um, coming in, and they were coming in very destitute impoverished, etc. There was even more prejudice against them in the 1850s. Um, during the Civil War, things kind of uh, sort of receded a little bit because you had plenty of Irish-born um, immigrants serving in um, the Civil War. But after the Civil War in the 1870s, um, there was still a lot of anti-Irish prejudice. Um, I've seen uh, cartoons in uh, prominent mainstream weekly magazines like Harper's Weekly uh, depicting the Irish in the 1870s as um, ape-like, with ape-like features, um, as uh, brawling, drunken animals, low-life animals. Right. Um, so that's the 1870s. Um, you have, uh, uh, through most of the 19th century, the Irish and the German were the two major immigrant groups, especially if you're looking at Cleveland history. Um there was uh, less prejudice in the 19th century against the Germans. Um, they didn't. They tended to arrive. Um, they came uh, sometimes for political reasons, and some of their um, 
their pressure point years coincided with the Irish. There was a um, uh, civil, well, I don't know, uprising, 1848, um, in in the German states, uh, and there was a lot of um, German immigration at that time, but they didn't tend to arrive in as... um, deprived and uh, destitute destitute state. And so they were able to, um, and they were often tradesmen, et cetera, and they tended to sort of quickly, um, even though they had a language barrier, they assimilated into the economy of the city at a different sort of entry point um, than the Irish did. Um, the Irish were tending to um, come into the economy at the lowest level of just hard hard laborers. Um, not to say that there weren't craftspeople or tradespeople among them, but um, the majority were um, just unskilled laborers. People even went so far as to tell Irish people to not even apply for certain kinds of jobs. And Margaret speaks here about that uh, phrase that you would find in the newspaper after certain want ads. You know, they teach you that phrase in school, you know, no Irish need apply. Was that, right. was that a common thing in an area like Cleveland? Oh, absolutely. Um, You can look through um, the help wanted ads and find that phrase um, frequently, uh, uh, especially uh, people looking for domestic help, um, maids, servants of different kinds. Um, You can see that phrase at the end of ads in the Cleveland Plain Dealer and other papers of the time, um, extending well into the 19th century. A lot of this animosity towards Irish people came because there was no real legal framework for immigration prior to the 20th century. Uh, There were several ports of entry, Boston, New York, Baltimore, Philadelphia, but there was very little information that you had to provide to get off a boat and come into the United States. Basically, your name your gender, and possibly what you did for a living. But beyond that, uh, if you got on a boat and came to one of those places, you're going to get into the country. So uh, about 1890 was the first time that there was any kind of controls established on the influx of immigration into the United States. And Margaret talks about how the Irish prior to this actually did benefit from that lack of framework. As a result of my knowing a little bit about Irish immigration history. Um, I feel very empathetic to people um, trying to escape whatever cer- you know adverse circumstances they have in their country and come here. And I and I know that um, for most of the 19th century, the um, immigration process was not very organized, and the Irish benefited from it. Our first featured artist today, Doug McKean, wraps a lot of these ideas up into a song called. Dear Santa, which we didn't even know he had written until we walked into Terrestrial Brewing in April of 2019. He takes a lot of the uh, ideas that Margaret Lynch presented uh, in the history of Irish immigration and ties them together with what's going on now in immigration. So sit back and listen to Cleveland local artist Doug McKean sing uh, his song called Dear Santa. Santa It's that time of year again I know it's too much To ask you to change the hearts of men If you see Molly's ghost rapping on the door You send them in the ghost of old anymore We used to take them in as they came Cough, shower, and shorten their name So you bring me a list of a mother's new plans 
cold defendants on the witness stand The Statue of Liberty on the Rio Grande Dear Santa Don't they get tired of all the hating Even brought Miss Nielsen in Yeah, the cruelty helps with their ratings Harming people just trying to turn their pages We're all mixed up about who belongs in cages We used to take them in as they came Call, shout, shorten their names You bring me a list of a mother's new plans Some cold defendants on the witness stand The Statue of Liberty on the Rio Grande Dear Santa You'll need no bag to bring me toys in Just make my mom and dad Swear off that Fox News poison Santa, you fly, I'll buy anything you order Everyone deserves a break after a long night of crossing borders We used to take them in as they came Cough, shower, coating the names So you bring me a list of a mother's new plans Some cold defendants on the witness stand A statue of liberty on the Rio Grande An interesting side note to the recording process for this episode would be that uh, Terrestrial Brewing was actually open for business while we were doing the recording on the second floor. The floors were very thin, so you can hear dogs barking and people talking in the background. And as a live recording engineer, you often are very concerned about these kind of things. But if we wanted to use the room on that particular day... We had to make it work, which we did. And we also then thought, well, an Irish neighborhood in the early 20th century probably was not all that quiet anyway. And there were probably a lot of dogs barking in an Irish neighborhood. So we are now calling this authenticity. Both Margaret Lynch and Kevin O'Toole have anecdotes about Johnny Kilbane's early life. And their stories have some different details as well as a lot of consistency to them. So let's listen to a couple of clips of both of these people talk about his father and his early life in the angle. So by the time uh, period that we're looking at with Johnny Kilbane, the Irish community was very well established then by that point in Cleveland. Right. right? And uh, Johnny Kilbane's father would have been one of the um, sort of early uh, people to leave as a result of that um, late 1870s and early 1880s famine. Um, we don't know uh, 100, with 100% um, certainty uh, when he came to Cleveland, but he starts showing up um, in the uh, city directories in about 1880. We think that he might have 
Uh, I know it's been said by some that he immigrated earlier in the 1870s, but my personal feeling is that he immigrated in the possibly about 1879. Okay, so the late 1870s. Um. And he would have been one of the first people to leave as a result of that um, pressure that um, the Ackle Island was feeling um, during that s- small famine um, between like 1878 and 18. 18- you know, 84. Um, so he was born in the Angle, uh, obviously a heavily ethnic area of Cleveland at the time. Um, grew up with um, other Irish immigrants in that area of town and um, uh, eventually became a boxer, um, not by choice, but by necessity. You know, a lot of a lot of things happened at the time where you just had to fight to survive. Um, and he um, ultimately was determined that he was good at it and there was a way to support his family. But uh, he always said that if there was another way to support his family, he would gladly do that. But, of course, boxing paid very well, so that was a great way to support the family. Kevin O'Toole talks about having to fight for everything in a place like the Angle, and that came early to Johnny Kilbane. Some tragedy happened to his mother and his father when John was under 10 years old. So let's listen to more of Kevin talk about this part of Johnny's life. For most of his life, of Johnny's life, his dad did not work, and he supported him. Because that's one of the reasons he had to drop out of school in the sixth grade was to support his family. Okay. Um, his mother had died when he was about three, and Johnny's father became blind when he was about six, so wasn't able to support the family. So as a result, Johnny dropped out of grade school in order to you know, find ways to support the family. So he had a lot of responsibility thrown on him at a very early age. Did he have siblings? He did not have direct siblings. Really? Um, he had two stepsisters from uh, his dad was remarried much later in life, uh, but no, no other uh, you know, direct siblings. It became very clear through my interviews with Kevin O'Toole and Margaret Lynch that Johnny Kilbane, he was not the typical fighter-type person. He wasn't a mean guy. He was actually uh, kind of slight of build. He was only about five foot six and weighed about 123 pounds, which put him in the featherweight division eventually in boxing. But he had a lot of interest outside of sports, and, and boxing definitely was not at the top of his list as a way to make a living. But uh, Kevin O'Toole tells a great story about how Johnny became enthralled by boxing and kind of got pulled into the whole scene and found out that he was actually very good at it. Yeah, so maybe I can tell you a little bit about how he got into yeah, boxing. Please do. It's, it's a bit of an interesting story. So um, back in um, the early 1900s, um, there was a, a very famous world uh, boxer that came to Cleveland to do an exhibition. Um, and Johnny was very young, but he went to this exhibition. It was a smoke-filled room. It was all the, you know, politicians of the day, the, the people that were big for the time came to witness this exposition. And he became kind of enthralled with the whole atmosphere. Um, and that really sparked his interest of boxing. Um, about that time, there was an, uh, a trainer that was going to have a fight out in Vermilion, about you know, what, 30 miles west of here. Um, and so Johnny wanted to go out and witness this. Um, so he had a good friend that worked downtown and ran an elevator, and he convinced him to borrow the money to get on a train to go out to Vermilion to watch, watch this boxing exhibition. Um, and when he got out there, um, the, one of the boxers couldn't go. He was hurt or, or for whatever reason couldn't box. And so the trainer said, well, if there's anybody here that's willing to box, I'd be happy to give you a demonstration and, and show a little bit about what's happening. <laughs> right. And, you know, as pals do, Johnny's Westside pals volunteered him to be the, the person that goes in and essentially, you know, just get your brains beat in for the benefit of everybody else to watch. Um, but what happened was um, Johnny actually held his own in this exhibition and the the boxer was so impressed that he made an offer to train Johnny professionally 
Um, and that's how he got his career started. So even though uh, Jimmy Dunn was the, was the boxer at the I was going to ask you if you knew um, who that was. Right? So even though Jimmy Dunn was only a couple years older than Johnny, he quit boxing professionally to be Johnny's manager and became kind of a, a mentor, a coach, a father figure, even though he was only a couple years older than him. And then the two of them had great success for many, many years, and he trained him to ultimately be a world champion and, and beyond. So, um, But that's how he got his kind of first taste of, of boxing. The date of this first fight that Kevin O'Toole mentions is 1907, so Jimmy Dunn and Johnny Kilbane work for the next five years to put Johnny in a position where he can become the world featherweight champion. And at this point in time, boxing is the largest sport in the world, and it's also very shady. So uh, they work hard, and they suffer some setbacks, and Kevin O'Toole tells this great anecdote about how and when Johnny Kilbane finally captures the World Featherweight Boxing Championship. I, I can tell you a good story about, uh, or a story about um, when he won the title and related to the promoter. Um, the promoter had his own fighter that he wanted to set up to fight the, the champion, who was Abe Attell at the time. Um, and so he created a tournament out in California. And the winner of the tournament then would have a shot to fight the champion to to get the world championship. And he set the tournament up again so his own fighter could have that chance because he obviously wanted to take care of him. Um, so the first match that um, Johnny fought against this guy, his name was Joe Rivers, um, there was a decision that was highly controversial that Johnny lost. Um, and Johnny had to fight all the best fighters to get to the final. The other guy had to fight all the easy fighters. Right. So there was such a controversy that they had to fight again before there was an opportunity to fight for the championship. And so Johnny left no doubt at that point. He knocked the guy out and really um, showed that he was deserving of the shot to get to the title. So when Johnny fought for the title, which was the result of or the reward for winning that tournament, the promoter was really upset um, and didn't even offer Johnny a uh, a trophy or a championship belt that had been promised. So the Cleveland uh, Plain, uh, not the Plain Dealer, the Cleveland um, Leader was the newspaper at the time in Cleveland, told this story. And the Cleveland, the people of Cleveland actually raised the money and bought Johnny a belt, which ended up being the only championship belt he ever had. The promoter wouldn't give it to him because he wanted his own fighter to win. Right. So it was a great tie-in to show how much the people of Cleveland supported Johnny and were willing to kind of fundraise and, and get him that belt that he, that he won. Does the belt still exist? It does. The belt exists. Um, we have it. Um, at the time, there was diamonds, and it was a very nice belt. Um, during the Depression, like everybody, um, our family had to do whatever we can to put food on the table. And for us, that meant taking the diamonds out of the belt and selling them. Right. Um, so it's just glass now. So there's not any kind of value um, other than sentimental. But yeah. The, well, the, the and historical. Sources. Yeah, and definitely and historical, historical sure. value, too. It was sure. like, uh, it's almost a crowdsourcing. Like it's almost like a Kickstarter <laughs> right. for his belt 100 years ago. Right, right. <laughs> which, original. which is kind of very interesting. This championship win by Johnny Kilbane is so popular that he comes home on St. Patrick's Day in Cleveland, which anybody from Cleveland knows is a huge day of celebration in this town. And over 100,000 people show up to welcome him home and give him a parade. This becomes the largest gathering of people in downtown Cleveland until the Cavs win their championship under LeBron James. To celebrate this great victory, let's take a break from the Johnny Kilbane story and listen to another song. This song was recorded in the second floor of Terrestrial Brewing at the same time we recorded Doug McKean. And the importance of Terrestrial Brewing is that it's in a place called Battery Park. And Battery Park has erected a statue to Johnny Kilbane as a tribute to him because Johnny Kilbane eventually moved out of the angle and, like other Irish people, moved west 
uh, towards the outer edges of Cleveland, and he actually lived about six blocks away from where Terrestrial Brewing is located now. Let's listen to a song that Rory uh, recorded on that day called Liffy Side. dreams have all come true many friends have I in troubles few but my mind returns to a far gone time when I held your heart and you held mine King and Queen of Dublin Town And the Liffey sparkle like a crown In foreign tongues we'd need no words Was the sweetest tune I'd ever heard To flow like a river through my life Lay me to sleep in your bed And carry me out to your time Will we meet again by Liffey's side The dreams I had are lost to view For the dreams I only had for you And for all I've fought For all I've tried I'm still holding you by Liffey's side To flow like a river through my life Lay me to sleep in your bed And carry me out to your time Will we meet again by Liffey's side? Will we meet again by Liffey's side? I'm still holding you 
by Lithy's side Johnny Kilbane's 1912 victory became a huge point of pride for Cleveland. And he identified himself not only as an Irish person, but as a Clevelander too. And that's very important because at this time period, Irish people have been shuffled off into a lot of uh, different jobs. I talked to Margaret Lynch at length about uh, how a lot of Irish people in Cleveland entered into public service and why that happened. And Johnny Kilbane eventually enters into public service himself. So let's listen to both Kevin O'Toole and Margaret Lynch talk about these two different aspects of the Irish experience in the early 20th century and how Johnny Kilbane, the son of an Irish immigrant, helps to bond all of these elements together. Now, how did the Irish community find their way into public service? How, like, it's almost... uh you know, right. a thing in Cleveland where, right. like, you know, if you're Irish, you're a firefighter or you're a policeman. Were those not well-respected jobs at the time, and that's why they were available? Or? Um, to some extent, um, the police and the firemen um, are dangerous jobs, um, as we know, and uh, so uh, were uh, regarded as, as less desirable. But also, um, they weren't uh, – they were um, – we didn't have an organized police force or a fire department for the most part um, before the Civil War, so the uh, so the fact um, that it w- that it was forming at a time when um, you had just this huge influx of people arriving in the 1850s, maybe still casting about looking for something to do that was a little bit more permanent um, than joining uh, these dangerous um, jobs, the police and fire department. And um, entering into the life of the city in other ways, um, uh, some of our earliest um, Irish-born or Irish-American judges um, came, uh, and and a mayor, I think one of our first, the sort of late 19th century was the first Irish self-identified person of Irish heritage who was a mayor, John Farley, um, Robert Blee, these were two of our our first Irish-American mayors. Um, uh, it's sort of, t- you know, um, takes a little while for a community to mature enough to sort of enter into that Phase, higher, right? higher level of, or a critical you know, mass where you have right, enough, enough people voters. Here as a exactly. voter as- now he eventually became a uh, politician, didn't he? Yes. So his boxing career ended in 1923, um, as with most athletes, you're still relatively long, young in your lifespan, of course. So he reinvented himself into politics. Um, he tried to run for uh, sheriff, um, but he failed. Uh, he always believed it's because he used his given name, John Patrick Kilbane, and the public knew him as Johnny Kilbane. So he ran again as Johnny Kilbane and had much more success. Um, <laughs> Don't change your brand, I guess, is a good... <laughs> which tells right, you the right. power of celebrity in uh, right. the public's eye. But, um, so he, he had some local offices. He eventually was elected to the um, Ohio Senate and served there for several years until he was elected the um, clerk of courts for Cleveland. Um, and that was a job he held until he died in 1957. So after he retired from boxing... He did some odd jobs, teaching, running camps and clinics for young kids, but eventually his political career was um, how he uh, spent the, the back half of his of his life. Okay. So he at least try, he tried to give something back then to the uh, community after yes. um, he 
got all of that support initially through his uh, celebrity. Yeah, it was very important for him. Like I said, that Cleveland supported him for him to support Cleveland. So he had opportunities to move to L.A. or New York um, to capitalize on his boxing prowess or his celebrity. Um, but he felt it was really important to stay and support the community that had supported him. So he was very big on the community, the family, um, and Cleveland. So th- that was important that he stayed here and served them in some capacity. Although Johnny Kilbane was Irish in heritage, he was a Clevelander in his heart, and he always made sure that Cleveland came first and foremost in his thoughts and his actions. And the people of Cleveland responded in kind by treating Johnny Kilbane very well over the years from when he won the first championship belt all the way through his career as a politician. Was it the Irish community? Was it the entire city? Did he capture the hearts of people like across the city? Or was it a was it an ethnicity-based thing? And, and in the boxing world and the sports world, I guess, was it a very divided thing? Like, oh, that guy's an Irish guy. He fights the Italian guy. Did they have right. almost like characters and personalities like pro wrestling does now or even <laughs> like boxing does now? Yeah, there was a lot of that at the time. So as you described, an Irish and an Italian, obviously there was a lot of immigrants that supported that nationality. And so that brought people out to the fight, got them interested. The promoter could make more money. He played up that angle and made it a big story to kind of create more excitement. Um, but in terms of Cleveland, there was obviously a huge Irish population at that time. Um, and they were initially supportive. As Johnny achieved more and more success, it became a a Cleveland thing. So he didn't, um, he was very proud of his Irish heritage, but he was also very proud to be from Cleveland. And so the, the Cleveland, greater Cleveland community supported him. Um, so an example I'll give you is when he won the title in California in 1912, he uh, took a train to get back to Cleveland. And um, it was a couple weeks trip on a train at the time. Um, and he was scheduled to get back in early March. He uh, encountered a snowstorm out in Kansas City, had to stay a little bit further, and he actually arrived home on St. Patrick's Day. Um, so as you can imagine, St. Patrick's Day, an Irish guy who won just won the world championship was obviously well-received, um, but it was broader than that. So at the time, it was a Sunday, and at the time, um, nothing happened on Sunday. But the mayor... Um, who was not supportive of boxing, by the way, um, came in to, to the city on Sunday and they had a parade. And up until the Cavs winning the championship, it was the largest gathering of people in Cleveland in history. Wow. For any politician or person, there was a couple hundred thousand people that lined the streets. His train came into downtown um, and then ended out where he lived at 74th and Herman on the west side. Right. And so people lined the streets. Um, it wasn't just Irish people. It was everybody in Cleveland that was proud of you know, somebody from Cleveland had made it. Somebody from Cleveland had done something that they could be proud of. Um, and so the entire community at that point was, was behind him. So he was like the LeBron James of the early 20th <laughs> century then. <laughs> yes, yes. And at the time, um, I mentioned before, boxing was really the sport. Um, right. Baseball was starting to come about, um, but it wasn't popular. The other sports either hadn't been invented or weren't popular at all. So from a worldwide perspective, boxing was really the sport. Everybody got behind it. Everybody knew about boxing. Um, so that level of celebrity was much higher than any other sport. Even if you think about today, you know, when the Cavs won the championship, there were still three other professional sports in Cleveland um, and the popularity is spread amongst a lot of different athletes. In Johnny's time, that wasn't the case. There was very few athletes that everybody knew um, and recognized. um, And by virtue of him winning the championship, he was in that small group of people. It's only human to want something better for you and your family. And Johnny Kilbane was no different. As he gained some notoriety and money from his boxing, he moved his family out of the angle and down Detroit Avenue westward at first to 74th and Herman in what is now called the Detroit Shoreway area. And his moves mirror a general migration of the Irish community 
in Cleveland down three major roads westward, uh, down Lorraine, down Madison, and down Detroit Avenues. And Margaret Lynch tells us about this timeline very specifically in this great clip. And uh, the tendency there was to, uh, if you got a foothold and got established enough, was to move out along Detroit um, and this neighborhood that we're sitting in now, right. 78th and Detroit, um, which we now call the Detroit Shoreway neighborhood, um, was uh, to great extent um, uh, peopled, if you will, by um, people who are Irish immigrants who, or their descendants who are moving out of the angle and up and further west. Um, and Detroit was one of those main arteries, um, to a lesser extent, Madison and, um, Lorraine. And you had the, uh, building of St. Coleman's, for example, reflecting that immigrant right. uh, population moving further West. And then the family moved up out of the angle. They lived right in that, you know, in that vicinity, in that several multiple block vicinity near the, um, railroad yards and the, um, the, the docks and the shipbuilding yards. Then they moved out along Detroit and moved into um, a um, house on 74th and Herman because Johnny, by that time, um, they moved, um, he was living in that house when he became the champion, world champion in 1912, but he had been fighting um, since about 1907 and was um, in 1910 census, he identifies himself as a prize fighter. Yeah. and so he had the means to, um, you know, to move the family into um, a house in this, you know, better neighborhood, if you, you know, at that time. And then they moved further along, um, uh, along Detroit to um, St. Rose's Parish, um, and then further out to West Park and St. Patrick's in West Park, right. eventually. So their um, migration westward <laughs> is a the story of uh, a lot of uh, Cleveland Irish people. Irish people. Yeah. Well, let's celebrate some of this newfound Irish prosperity with a song. And one of our featured artists, Doug McKean, brought this happy song about traveling, prosperity, and fun to the table at Terrestrial Brewing when we recorded on the second floor live directly to disc. Here's a great little number called Mershon Durkin. In the days that I was courting, I was seldom tired of sporting to an alehouse or a playhouse, and many's the house beside I'll tell my brother Seamus I'll go off and be right famous And when I come back home again I'll have roamed the whole world wide This goodbye Merchant Durkin Yes, I'm sick and tired of working The longer I'll dig Brady's And no longer I'll be full The shores and aim is Carney I'll be up in California The longer I'll dig Brady's I'll be digging lumps of gold I've courted girls in Kearney and Kenturkin in Killarney and Passage and in Queenstown, that is the Cobb of Court. Goodbye to all this pleasure, I'll be up to take my leisure. And the next time that you hear from me, it'll be a letter from New York. It's goodbye, Merchant Durkin, yes, I'm sick and tired of working. No longer I'll dig Brady's and no longer I'll be fooled. Shores, my name is Kearney, I'll be up for California. Long round the Brady's, I'll be digging lumps of gold. Goodbye to all the girls at home, I'm headed far across the phone. Go and seek my fortune in far America. There's golden chills of plenty for the poor and for the gentry. And when I come back home again, no longer I will say. But goodbye, Merchant Durkin, yes, I'm sick and tired of working. 
No longer I'll lick Brady's and no longer I'll be fooled The show's her name is Carney, I'll be up for California Longer I'll dig Brady's, I'll be digging lumps of coal As we bring Johnny Kilbane's story and the story of the Irish-American experience in Cleveland closer to an end, let's think about a couple things. Let's think about Johnny Kilbane's legacy, and not only just as a boxer, which is huge, and Kevin O'Toole will talk about this in a moment, but let's also think about this, the idea that a son of an Irish immigrant can rise to the point of being one of the most popular people, not only in Cleveland, but at the time, one of the most popular people in America on the level of somebody like LeBron James. This is crazy, and this is amazing, and this is a great story, and it tells a lot about the desire for somebody to come out of a neighborhood like the Angle in Cleveland that's filled with people who are looked down on, and he rises above all of that, and not only through boxing, but he had other things that he was interested in, too. And we're going to finish off this whole story with a look inside of Johnny Kilbane and what kind of drove him as a person. But first, let's listen to Kevin O'Toole talk about his legacy as a boxer and how important that is. Right. Can you speak a little bit about his legacy and what uh, you know what people still think about him as a boxer? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been 100 years, over 100 years since he's won the title. And with anything in society, uh, the further away you get from it, the, you know, people kind of diminish the impact in their own minds. And so, you know, as we go forward, there's always new heroes or new people that come into the public eye. Remarkably, Johnny still had some staying power. Um, and I was very pleased when we started to do some 100th anniversary um, activities that there was quite a bit of interest. Um, but if you look at historically and you talk about boxing historians, they'll still consider Johnny to be one of the greatest fighters of all time. Um, he held the title for almost 12 years, which is the longest reign of anybody in the history of boxing in any weight class. A lot of people will say Joe Lewis has that distinction. Um, he technically was retired during part of his reign. Um, Johnny held that uninterrupted. So when you talk about historical greats and streaks and things people like to talk about in sports, um, Johnny is part of that conversation. Um, and even in the featherweight division, which has gotten more narrow, um, as I mentioned, there was eight boxing divisions when Johnny was fighting. Mm -hmm. Now there's, I don't know how many, but probably twice that. Um, he's still significantly one of the best of all time, even considering the rules have kind of changed for how those are evaluated. So he's had a, a really strong, lasting impact, not just in Cleveland and the community and things that have happened here, but um, nationally and in the sporting community with boxing as well. Is there a boxing hall of fame anywhere? And is he in it? There is. There's actually two boxing hall of fames. The The most recognized one is in Conestoga, New York. Um, and he was, uh, it opened in about 1990, I think the early nineties. He was one of the first classes that was inducted. He was inducted really? in 95. So well after he was, he was gone, but right. yeah, he is recognized as one of the all time greats there. Now, do you think, um, he realized his impact on the sport when he was alive, or do you think he just felt it was a, a phase of his life that he went through? And like you said, then he reinvented himself as a politician and he moved on to something else. Was there any evidence anywhere that he kind of knew like that this was something kind of cool that he did? Yeah, I think he recognized it. Um, like I said, there wasn't a lot of people that had those same experiences. And so he appreciated that, particularly coming from nothing and having to support his family so young. Um, he had really great perspective about where he came from and, and what his success had meant and not allow that to to change him as a person, right? So it was important for him to give back to the community. It was important for him to help children. It was important for him to serve in a political capacity, all because of that was what was important to him is not to forget 
um, his rough upbringing and to make sure that other people didn't have to go through that if possible. The idea of using celebrity to help you and your family out of poverty is not unique to the Cleveland Irish experience. In fact, it's a human experience. There's millions of kids around the globe today that dream of becoming a pop star, a football star, or a basketball star. Johnny Kilbane, he won this lottery. He had a lot of interest in his life, but he understood that boxing was really his ticket out. And Margaret Lynch talks at length about this whole idea and some of the other avenues that uh, Johnny Kilbane might have had to escape poverty had boxing not worked out. Now, you mentioned when we talk about Johnny Kilbane, and and did other people see things like becoming a sports star or something like that as kind of a a ticket out of this like mundane existence <laughs> where they looked at was somebody like Johnny Kilbane looked up to um, not only by the greater public of Cleveland, but especially by Irish people as like, Hey, we oh. can do this too. Oh, of course. Yes. Um, the, um, uh, boxing uh, was a huge uh, sport. You know, imagine it um, nowadays because it doesn't have the place that it once held in sort of pop culture. Um, but baseball and boxing, were the you know the big sports at that time? Boxing uh, was appealing because uh, it was only needed you right. <laughs> and a pair of boxing gloves, right. um, so it didn't require a lot of organization. Um, baseball team you had to field nine people and uh, you know arrange had to a, have a place to a play schedule it, right? and yeah. have a big place to play. Not to say that there weren't logistics that had to be um, uh, created for boxing to be profitable. There were you had to have. Uh, places for the boxing matches, etc. But um, for a young person growing up on the streets, um, it was easy to imagine yourself uh, becoming a boxer um, uh, more easily than becoming a baseball player. Um, And there was uh, a a club in uh, St. Malachy's Parish um, where the Kilbane family lived at that time called the LaSalle Club. A lot of kids, it wasn't required to attend um, a, a school up until the eighth grade at that time. And a lot of kids had to drop out like Johnny himself did to help out their family and start making uh, money at a young age before you know they would have even graduated from grade school. So St. Malachy's formed um, a club called LaSalle Club, and you could belong to LaSalle Club whether you attended school or not. And so Johnny belonged to the LaSalle Club, and one of the activities was boxing. And they had not only uh, boxing lessons, but they held boxing matches. And um, he has written about a memory of seeing um, some boxing matches and um, how uh, alluring it was to him. But he also had thoughts of um, becoming an entertainer. Um, Boxing and entertaining vaudeville was another way out. Dancing, yeah, he's yes, a, a, and he was—he was—he was a—he um, was a, a, had a, a pleasant, a good singing voice, and um, and he was uh, quick on his feet. Um, he was quick on his feet as a boxer, but he also would have had the ability to possibly become a dancer, uh, or what they called in vaudeville then a hoofer, right? Um, tap dancing, basically a form of tap dancing, and um, he uh, dabbled in and the LaSalle Club also had um, folks who dabbled in um, the, uh, you know, vaudeville. My grandmother's um, brothers had an amateur vaudeville uh, tumbling act, um, and they were also members of the LaSalle Club. You know, uh, they were a little bit younger than Johnny, but, uh, but so he, 
he would have taken either way out, but that was like both of those um, opportunities were like winning the lottery. Everybody wanted to do it, but right. few were going to actually make it work. At this point in the podcast, it should become real clear that Johnny Kilbane was a pretty well-rounded guy. He was interested in theater, art, dancing, music, and he wasn't the stereotypical tough guy that a lot of people think that boxers probably are. Kevin O'Toole talks a lot about this, and this is a great clip from him talking about Johnny Kilbane and how he also wanted to pass these ideas on to his family because of his success. Did he have any other interests outside of boxing and politics? Did he have any artistic pursuits or um, you know, anything like that? Yeah, when actually when Johnny was very young, he thought he would be a dancer. That was something that yeah. he aspired to and had a lot of uh, interest and passion of. In fact, he would dance around the streets. Um, as it turned out, that helped with his um, dexterity and helped him with, with boxing, but um, he loved the stage. Uh, when he won the championship, he was made an offer to stay uh, in California and do vaudeville, which was very popular at the time yeah. to invite uh, people to do that. Um, he did that. Uh, he loved it. So he stayed out there for about two weeks and, in fact, made more money doing that than he did boxing. Um, but he, he loved the, kind of the stage and dancing and that sort of things. He Music as well. He learned to play the violin. Uh, it was important for his daughter, uh, my grandmother, to, to learn to play music as well. So, um, yeah, he definitely had some different uh, diverse passions. Um, like I said before, boxing wasn't necessarily his passion. It was what he needed to do to put food on the table. Right. Um, and he was good at it, and so he made a lot of money at it, so he kept doing it. Um, now, did he pursue, ever pursue, you said he dropped out of school very young. Right. Did he ever pursue any other education or was his education just purely all self-taught after after he dropped out of school? Yeah, he was the traditional life, uh, you know, taught him much more than he would learn in school. Right. Um, so, yeah, he. Did, I, don't, I don't believe he ever went back and finished his education. It was more just what he experienced in life and the people he got to interact with and how he learned from them. Seemed like he really then, though, wanted his family to be you know well-rounded too if he wanted to bring in music and stuff like that absolutely yeah it was very important for his family to have an education and and you know learn other parts of life music and theater as well johnny kilbane and his family continued to work and live in the city of cleveland until his death in 1957 at the age of 68 this isn't really the end of our story though as you can tell johnny's legacy has continued on he has family that lives here and his his uh, great-grandson, Kevin O'Toole, actually works for the Cleveland Cavaliers. So the sports thing remains in the family after all of these years. But more importantly, this whole story was about assimilation and empathy and how somebody from a quote-unquote lower class of people can uh, rise to the top and bring a lot of happiness to a lot of people. So the next time you're out there on the street, perhaps, and meet somebody that doesn't know our language that well or maybe just isn't fully assimilated into our culture, take a moment and think they might be or their son or daughter might be the next Johnny Kilbane. Among Johnny Kilbane's other artistic pursuits, he also wrote poetry. And to close out this podcast, we have a very special presentation. Rory Hurley took a poem that Johnny Kilbane wrote and put it to music. And for the first time ever, we have this song presented. Lyrics by Johnny Kilbane and music by Rory Hurley. Please enjoy Fighting Heart. A man can have two arms of steel, a punch of dynamite. 
But without faith and fighting heart, he'll miss the greatest heights. He may possess an iron fist and strength beyond his need. And then he may be quick of heart and blessed with extra speed. He may have great agility and be a fancy dan. But without faith and fighting heart, he's just an also-ran. This need of heart is not just for the pugilist who fights, but it holds true for all of us who battle for our rights. For when the chips of life are down and troubled waters mount, a fighting heart will see us through however long the count. A fighting heart will see us through however long the count. I hope you've enjoyed episode three of the Ohio Heritage Music Podcast, A Fighting Heart, Johnny Kilbane and the Irish American Experience in Cleveland. My name is Clint Holly, and I've been your host. This podcast was produced in conjunction with Roots of American Music and the Ohio Arts Council. Roots of American Music is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the preservation and education of American Roots music. Please visit www.rootsofamericanmusic.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Take a moment and make a contribution to Rome to keep these podcasts coming. I would like to take a moment and thank everybody that was involved in this podcast. Margaret Lynch and Kevin O'Toole for the great interviews. John Skritic at the Cleveland Public Library for information regarding Battery Park and Johnny Kilbane. Roots of American Music Artistic Director Kevin Richards for being the scribe on all of the interviews and John McDonald for outlining all of the interviews and the original script concept. And Dave Polster, who masters these podcasts for your listening pleasure and is also part of the Ernest Tube live directed disc on location recording crew. Stay tuned for episode four in a few weeks, which is going to be great. It's about Ripley, Ohio, and an abolitionist named John Rankin. So until then, have a great day. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotas, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah, right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Tripotis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.